Hey, everybody. Welcome back to A Higher Future. I'm UBC Mignetti, and as always, joined by Nicole Gravagna. How are you? Hi, UB. Who are we talking with today? So I'm excited uh, because our guest today, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of connections to previous guests and just a real synergy between all of the work that we're doing, but also what we talk about on the show. So first of all, Everett Harper, who's CEO and co-founder of Truss, T-R-U-S-S. Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. I really appreciate uh, coming on. I'm actually excited based on some of the stuff we'd uh, talked about in some of the past podcasts. Perfect. No, we're excited too. And where I think I, I, I'd love to get started with kind of an understanding of trust, but from the, the perspective of how you all approach hiring, because I think it's, it's something that or other organizations can really truly learn from, um, particularly post-pandemic, right? When we're all coming out of this thing, how do we start to grow our organizations again? So, um... I think coming out of the pandemic and how do we regrow our organizations, there's a couple background pieces on trust that are probably good to situate the listeners. One is that we made a decision uh, 10 years ago to be fully, to be distributed first. And that was a business decision. We can talk about that later. Um, so we, in many ways, we had 10 years to sort of make mistakes, develop systems, focus on connection and communication. Um, in order to have people in 25 states where we do now. Oh. So in many ways, um, uh, my comments would be uh, that. The second is that um, we're a software development company. So um, hiring is challenging because trying to get talent is really, really difficult, particularly since I live in Oakland and there's a couple of big mm. companies that we might be competing <laughs> with. Um, just a few. <laughs> yeah, just a few. So I think um, our approach to, to hiring is really rooted in a couple values um, that we started with. And, I'll, and we can go into but briefly. We wanted to have a diverse company. I'm a Black CEO. My two co-founders, a white male who is highly technical, uh, who's CTO, and a white woman who is also highly technical. She's our CEO, COO now. So we don't look like most of the companies that start out here. Mm -hmm. And we wanted that start to then be reflected in the company we eventually were going to create. So we knew we had to start at the beginning. Um, and I think that is the essence of the, the core of where we started. Well, I, I love that. And so the question back to you that maybe is on a lot of people's heads would be, well, if we didn't start that way, if we didn't start our company in that way, is, is there a way to quote unquote get back on track? Yeah. So I think the first thing is do you, listener, uh, organizational head, understand the why of why you want a diverse company? Is hmm. it connected to a business model? Um, if it's not, the risk is that becomes a side project and those side projects tend to as soon as there's comp competition money's a little tight it gets pushed off to the side yeah. so if you really want to have that kind of company understanding where it connects to the business model and what you want to achieve as a company that's really i think the first step yeah i think that's super important that's something that we've always asked kind of the leadership you know in our clients you gotta start with the why 
you know, Simon Sinek, <laughs> yeah, why do right. you want to do this? And is it a priority? Cause yeah, that's a great point. If it's, if it's not a priority, it, it just doesn't work. I feel like uh, we have similar paths as an organization. You know, we've been very purposeful in mm-hmm. not only who we look like now, but who we want to look like and, you know, really embracing that in, in how we build the product too. And Nicole can talk a lot about that, but I think we're going to transition to uh, one of our previous guests, Todd Rose. Yeah. So this is, this is a fascinating segue here that you, you're talking about, you know, what are your values, what you're hiring around these values and productivity tends to be a value that is Mm -hmm. um, highly touted in many organizations, but it sounds like you have some thoughts on, you know, even questioning what does it mean to be productive and what's required for productivity and what's required for innovation. So one of those basic concepts of we're hiring for productivity can be thrown on its head when you start asking deeper questions. So Todd Rose was, um, was a guest that we had on the podcast a little while back. And it sounds like you have some, some similarities in thinking or, or you think about some similar topics and um, complexity and um, you have an organizational behavior background. Can, can you talk about what you thought about when you listened to that episode and, and how that goes into your thinking about running companies now? So what uh, resonated with me about the Todd Rose conversation is his, he would love to just stick a stake in Taylorism. Um, the notion that in the early 20th century, which actually was built on 19th century factory models of essentially humans as widgets, linear processes, humans as widgets, optimize a linear equation, go. That's the model we inherited as leaders. And what it doesn't take into account, which I think the pandemic really makes clear, is we live in a world of complex problems, particularly at scale. Anything involving a, uh, a server and a computer, you can optimize for the wrong thing and cause damage somewhere else. Economists would call it exogenous. Well, our climate is begs to differ right now. So I think um, the, the similarity and, and what I uh, really resonated with is we have an opportunity now. So to think about it maybe a little differently is this is the world's greatest, um, if you're an organizational behavior nerd or a neuroscientist or, or uh, <laughs> uh, an organization person, this is a controlled experiment you could never get away with. How, what would happen if you took the same company and everybody had to work from home? What it raises is some very fundamental questions. We did all of our work assuming an office. We had different offices, but we assumed office. If we weren't in an office, we were in a factory or a store, in a building. You wipe away all that. So what becomes really interesting, if we stay curious, is what would we define productivity as now that you take away the office? Well, one thing you do is make sure that you don't measure productivity by who's in first and who's doing FaceTime by staying late, even though they haven't done anything in the middle of the day. Um, mm-hmm. that simple thing that a lot of people sort of say, oh, he's a hard worker or she's a hard worker, they're here at 7 p.m., is not a measure at all. So those kinds of questions come up, and I think that's really exciting. Yeah, I, um, it, it's got me thinking to your point about 
technology and, and being able to scale and operationalize those things, you know, to, to your point about turning everything into an equation and how much can we get out of these widgets hmm. and, and really in what ends up happening is that technology to your point will end up causing damage somewhere else down the line. Uh, you know, and I think about our industry where there's a lot of AI technology mm -hmm. that has been designed to replace the human in a hiring process that's not meant to be driven by technology solely, right? Like the, right. that human to human connection is crucial. Right. Uh, but we've sort of moved away from that. But I think to your point now, we're, we're moving back towards that kind of the rubber band effect because of the pandemic one, you know, we're all itching to just be with each other again. Yep. Um, and this Zoom thing doesn't necessarily cut it anymore. But, but I think people are realizing that there could be a balance of tech and human and but but, re, you know, but asking the right questions to get there. That's, uh, that's fascinating. Yeah, um, I think ask, what you said at the end, asking the right questions, there's so many more questions now because we've, we've relaxed a lot of the assumptions. Um, and yeah, there's, 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 there's countless numbers of things, but you know, specifically when you sort of bring up the AI question, uh, and this kind of gets a little bit to kind of how you develop products, AI is run on data and data is selected or deselected by humans. What is your data pool that you're running your models off of? A human makes that decision. Mm -hmm. Then who are the humans around the table that are making that decision? And I think there's a lot of examples uh, from Google to Tesla, et cetera, where some of those decisions were, did not include people that look like me, for example, mm -hmm. um, or in another example from the, from the last century, uh, seatbelts were designed with women in mind. And I think, I believe, I, I'm not, I want to make sure I don't quote this incorrectly. A lot of injuries happened to women because they weren't designed for, for women. Um, that's a, just another example. And we keep repeating this pattern until we kind of think about who's in the room. There is human, are human processes to this. And we need to ask better questions at the inception of developing products. Do you have a piece of advice for people who are, I mean, so many of us are involved in building products that, um, so, and, and so many product roadmaps are built on customer personas. You pick yep. one person, you name them, and you pretend like they're a real person and you design exactly for them, which marginalizes literally everyone else right and so you know what is your advice to people who are working under that methodology or trying to find some way to not do that mm. so the advice i have about how to design when there aren't all the people in the room and trying to avoid those kinds of mistakes is first acknowledge who is in the room mm -hmm. and then second what blind spots might we have because we are all women or all black or we're all engineers. So this can work not only in a product team when you have cross-functional team, it could also work and obviously it could work with who are our customers. So there's lots of different techniques that people can use. Design sprints often will go out and say, here's how to get different stakeholders, et cetera. But I think the core message is understand the blind spot, understand that you have blind spots. Yeah. And then understand that if you want to develop great products, go ask the people who are going to be using it. 
who are going to be operating it and make sure that you take their perspectives into account and actually, frankly, celebrate when they bust an assumption that you once had. If you celebrate that, then people continue to be curious to seek more of those. And then finally, to iterate, to say, oh, we're going to develop this product. How quickly can we get feedback from the people that are operating or mm. um, using this product? If it's after a year, it's too late. Mm -hmm. Two weeks, one month, you'll get all that information early and you'll avoid having to rework. You'll avoid kind of the problem of, of de developing, you know, launching a product that no one wants and no one asked for. Um, and you'll learn some stuff. And you probably build a community around the product beforehand so that by the time you launch, you already have screaming fans saying, can you give me this because you actually asked my opinion and you respected the perspective that I have. That's huge. That's fabulous yeah. advice. And it, it, I just, know. it takes it takes everything oh that we know about like lean startup methodology and just, right. just expands it in a just ever so slightly um, different way that makes sure that it's inclusive to all users, not just some users. Yep. So one, one of the most powerful things I'd heard, I just, I, and I always bring this up because it just sticks with me all these years later was from an engineering manager who said, how, how am I supposed to develop a product for our diverse customer base if my entire team looks like me, bunch of, bunch of white guys? Mm -hmm. How am I supposed to do that? Like it, it was like a light bulb that went off in his head finally after all those years. And, right. and it was just, you know, shocking to him. So um, I love all of that. I'm, we're taking that back, Nicole. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So thank you for that advice. And it sounds like you're publishing some more advice. Um, so tell us about this book that's coming out. Sure. Um, so thanks for asking. The book is called Move to, Ed Move to the Edge, Declare It Center. Um, it is going to be published by Wiley and it will be out in early January. And really it is um, the result of both my personal experience as well as the work that we've done at my company, Trust. Uh, just as a side note, uh, Trust is a software development company. We do human-centered software that focuses on solving very complex problems for both uh, public agencies. Uh, we were one of the companies that got brought in to help fix healthcare.gov, a complex problem mm. if there ever was one, <laughs> right. as well as Fortune uh, 500 companies that are doing everything from healthcare to supply chain. What that means is we often, as my co-founder Mark will say, when everybody else runs away from the trash fire, we run toward the trash fire. <laughs> um, and what that does is create a lot of uncertainty and complexity. So what the book is about is how do you make decisions when you don't know the answer and you don't have a playbook? And if anything, the pandemic shows us that there are a lot more of those issues, whether it's uh, racial justice, whether it's the forest fires, whether it's pandemic itself, where we have an opportunity to think differently about these problems. And rather than freezing or fighting or fleeing, uh, as a result of the uncertainty, we can stay there and stay curious. So Move to the Edge is about moving to the edge of your knowledge and creating experiments so you can learn quickly and iterating on those experiments. Declare at Center is a set of processes that take that learning 
and move it to the center of your organization, whether it's a set of values or a set of processes, and then building infrastructure so that it's sustainable. The one reason often that these sorts of initiatives can fail, and this gets back in some ways to the diversity initiative, if it's one person's heroic effort, it's not sustainable. And that's a tragedy. And so building a framework that says there's processes for moving to the edge, as well as processes for bringing it center, enable that learning and growth to be sustainable, not just personally, but as an organization. Mic drop. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And that the heroism is not sustainable. Do you have an example of that that you've seen where an organization has relied on heroism? Ooh, wow. Um, I can tell an apocryphal story. Okay. Um, There might be a person who is leading um, a diversity initiative. There's a person who might lead, I wanna be in this uh, this market. Um, You might have a person who is leading um, a social change effort. This is rampant in nonprofits. I used to work for a economic development Mm -hmm. finance institution. And there'd be one person with this vision and uh, charisma who'd gather the troops and lead on. And then as they became leaders, everybody wanted more and more of them. And of course they kept going forward. That person is a candidate for burnout. Mm -hmm. Uh, Last year, actually, uh, even more um, uh, timely, Last year during the, uh, after George Floyd was murdered and the protests, a lot of people had a a reckoning. Um, And so many uh, people who were African-American got deluges of calls asking for help, what can I do? Most of them really well-intentioned and it was a deluge and people weren't aware calling that that is basically an ask of a person, not a gift or an offer to a person. Mm-hmm. And so that's a burnout of asking, like, because you want to help, you want to be able to support folks on their journey, and eventually becomes exhausting. So there's many, many examples, but those are two that yeah. I'm thinking off the top of my head. It sounds to me, yeah. you know, that I can take it at face value that heroism is is not sustainable, but what you just said is heroism is not sustainable because for one person to be a hero, it's exhausting for everyone else. Yeah, it's exhausting for them and for everybody else. I think that's right. Um, And so for us, we try and think about, and what I sort of talk about in the book is one, as an organization, how do you support people that have these new initiatives? You don't let them go out on their own. You build systems around the experiments that are trying to do, and maybe you add some infrastructure, maybe you add some support, maybe you add a team. And then coming back, this is what kills lots of innova- you know, innovation arms you know, from Xerox Park to, to Kodak. If it's too far out there and there aren't systems to bring the learnings back in, the company becomes an antibody, the, the initiative becomes an antibody to the organization, right? That's mm-hmm. another example of you can be heroic in developing um, digital cameras, but if the host rejects it, they burn out and they go elsewhere. Wow, that's yeah, <laughs> that is such a oh man, I love it. That's such a really cool way to end because 
it, it just gets me thinking, you know, I feel like the DEI industry, right, is, is sort of at, come, come to its own reckoning. And, um, but, but when you, you know, the hero thing, I mean, how many times have we seen an organization hire a chief diversity officer? Mm-hmm. It's almost like they're buying a hero. They're trying to buy a hero to come in and do this thing on their own. Right. But they don't last very long, right? They, right. they a couple of years, maybe if you're lucky. Right. Um, and, and so it's, it's just not the right approach. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's what you're talking about. It's like building the right systems around it, building an, a, a leading priority strategic initiative backed by the executives. Right. And supporting it constantly, man, that's, oh, well, yeah. Everett, this has been awesome. <laughs> I loved good. it. Thank you, man. This is so good. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. And I appreciate your questions and, and your curiosity as well. It's, it's fun to, to talk and make these kind of connections. So, uh, you know, if, if anybody at the podcast is sort of feeling a little bit on their edge, great, we've accomplished something. And now <laughs> yes. uh, keep going and, and sort of declare one of the things that maybe have been talked about as your center. And, and look for that book, Move to the Edge of De- Wait, how, Move to it? the Edge, <laughs> Move Declare to the it edge. Center. Declare, declare it, it Center. center. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, I like that. Awesome. Well, Everett, thank you again. It's been a pleasure. And thank you, everybody, for continuing to, to tune in and, and check us out. So it's a higher future. You can find us on the interviewia.com website. And we'll check you later. Thanks, everybody. Mm-hmm.